As we continue our studies in Deuteronomy, we turn today to chapter 14. It is a strange chapter talking to us about how the old Israelites were supposed to mourn their dead and how they were to eat. But buried in this apparently obscure material is the answer to what God considers to be his most precious possession. Let's join Dave Wurtson as he describes his visit to Queen Elizabeth's crown jewels and some of the reflections he had as he stood gazing at these incredible precious gems. Finally, they start you upstairs and you go through some mediocre kind of things, you know, like rubies and emeralds and things like that. And then they take you downstairs, single file, and you wind down the staircase, and then you walk into a vault. Now, walking into vaults gives me a little bit of the creeps. How about you? Maybe some of you have enough treasure that you have a bank vault, and so you've had that experience of walking through, and you see that great big steel doors with these gigantic hinges, not like the hinges on your door at home that any robber could just hit it a little bit and it would fall off the hinge. These are incredibly large steel hinges. In fact, you look around and you notice that there's several feet of concrete. You can almost feel the weight of concrete. This thing is built to withstand a direct hit with an H-bomb. So you've got tremendous protection being given all this concrete like a bunker. And you walk in and then you wind around and you see the crown jewels of the Queen of England. And you see the, the crown that they wear when they go through the coronation. It's about one of the only times they wear it in other formal state ceremonies. Uh, you see these incredible diamonds and everyone sitting there ooing and eyeing. You can kind of go through a, a close track where you can move quickly, but you get to look at it really close. Or you can take a distant track where you can just stand there and gawk. Now, I've really never been into gems for obvious reasons. To me, you know, one of the incredible things about human beings is that stuff that we dig out of the ground, we, we take all this labor down in South Africa to dig several hundred feet down and to get one of these diamonds, and then we get it up here and do all kinds of work on it, and then we bury it again in a vault. And I've never quite been able to figure that out, but it's what we do with treasured possessions. What we want to talk about are treasured possessions. If I were to ask you what were Queen Elizabeth's, what were her major treasured possessions, it would be easy to answer the question. I mean, it would be the crown jewels. And the Tower of London and all the British guards and all the safe would prove that that's her treasured possession. Now imagine a king who had so much wealth that instead of going over here to North Texas Cement or TXI or one of the other cement plants in the area, when it came time to pave the roads, which always needs to be done on our street, so if the county commissioner is listening, we could use our street paved, and it would be time to do that. This person was so powerful that they paved the streets. Instead of with concrete, they used gold to do that. Now, I can imagine somebody with that kind of wealth. Also, when it came time, you know, like to build fences, or like a, a wall around the city, this ruler was so wealthy, they would take gems like emeralds and rubies and sapphires and diamonds, and they just kind of put this into the walls of the city, you know, just for decoration. 
Now, that would be something. I mean, that would be a multi-multi-billionaire. And that's who we are here to adore and to praise. The Lord God of heaven is a king that uses gold to pave his streets, and he uses emeralds and precious stones just as decorations on his wall. That's what he does, okay? So I ask you, what is his treasured possession? What is so special to him that he guards it, he protects it? It would mean everything to him if he were to lose it. What is that treasured possession? And incredibly, I want every single one of you to know that you are God's special possession. You are his treasured possession. And we're going to deal with a very strange, difficult passage. It's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 14. I want you to turn there. And that passage begins talking to us about God's treasured possessions. And as this chapter develops, it talks about the fact that your God's treasured possessions means that you need to be careful about the way that you mourn your dead. Now, that's a very interesting thing. In fact, I would never think about that, of giving you instruction on how you mourn your dead if it wasn't for the word of God. And second of all, under the old covenant, God was very concerned with the way that you eat. And we're going to deal with a very Jewish thing today. And if you have some Jewish friends, hopefully you'll get a little bit more understanding into some of their food laws. But we want to try to get underneath all these clean and unclean ideas of food and understand what in the world God is doing when he talks about be careful the way you mourn your dead and be careful the food that you eat. Look what it says as we begin chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. For you are a people holy or set apart or special to the Lord. That's what the word holy means. You are a people that's set apart. You are a special people who are God's possession. You are the treasure of his heart. You say, Dave, where do you get that? We'll read a little bit further. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be what? His treasured possession. Now, in the Old Covenant, as we read the book of Deuteronomy, God reached down and chose a very special people. They were called the children of Abraham. Those people developed into the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the Old Testament, from Moses' time until the coming of Christ, it was very important that there be one people on the earth that was chosen out of all the other nations, out of all the other people. They were going to be a special people. Number one, their commitment to the moral laws of God, their commitment to what was right, was supposed to be like a magnet that drew people to want to come to Jerusalem to worship the true God. The specialness of their relationship with God, their hard commitment to love God with all their heart, was supposed to be so attractive that people from all over the world would want to know about the Creator God. They would want to know about the God who had made an incredible promise because at the heart of this business of being the chosen people of God, the Israelite people of the Old Testament, at the heart of that specialness is they were going to bring the promised one. 
They were going to bring this male deliverer that we've talked about many times. The book of Hebrews spent the entire series of chapters in the book of Hebrews spelling out that Jesus is this promised Jewish Messiah. And the people of the Old Testament were special because they were going to be the distinctive people that would ultimately bring the Messiah into the world. And in order for that to happen, they needed, they needed to be separated They needed to be different. They needed to be a people who didn't just get amalgamated into the nations, that didn't just get lost in this great big bowl of hash called all the nations of the world. The Israelite people in the Old Testament were chosen out of that great big confusion of nations, and they were made a special people. And that's what Moses is calling attention to. You are the children of the Lord your God. You are a people that's to be holy. You're a people that's to be distinctive from all the other nations. Now, in the Old Testament, that distinctiveness took some very distinctive forms. And let's begin by thinking about some of the distinctions that made Israel different in the Old Testament. The very first thing that Moses mentions in this chapter is that the way that they mourned their dead was different. If you were a Canaanite and someone in your family died, the agony of death, the agony of losing one of your loved ones, and some of you have experienced that tremendous knife blade that sinks deep into your heart when you get that news that you've lost one of your loved ones. Death reminds us that there's something wrong in human existence. Death reminds us that there's something that's twisted that you begin with the laughing baby and the rejoicing of a new life and suddenly it can be snuffed out and someone's gone and in the unbelieving world you ask, where did they go? That begins to generate all kinds of ideas of are there beings out there who somehow are responsible for death? Maybe I'm responsible for death because my conscience inside of me makes me feel bad. And when I feel bad, I feel that there needs to be pain. And one of the things that the Canaanites would do, in fact, all false religions ultimately get involved of some form of what the writer just talked to us about. This business of cutting yourself. And distorting your body, marring your body. The Old Testament, the book of Exodus, says be careful about disfiguring your body. I want every one of you to understand specifically what was happening among the Canaanites. The Canaanites believed that their gods, Baal and Ashtar, could be manipulated by things that human beings would do to themselves. One of the things they believed is maybe if they made themselves hurt... Maybe if they made themselves experience pain, like if they took a knife and they cut their arms and that blood would flow, that Baal, the god of lightning and thunder and the god of war and the goddess of war, Ashtart, would see that blood and maybe somehow they would get a handle in that god. Maybe Baal and Ashtart would listen to their agony. Maybe wherever their loved ones went in that deep, dark netherworld, that world of the dead, maybe by cutting themselves they could get Baal and Ashtart to meet the need of the agony of their souls and take care of their loved ones. And Moses came along and he gave a delivering message. He said, the Lord God of heaven is not a capricious 
He's not a mean, he's not a vindictive God. That when you pray to him, in order to get him to listen, in order to grab his ear, you don't need to cut yourself. God doesn't look at the pain that you inflict. When you're experiencing that agony of death, Moses is telling his people that the Lord God that you pray to is the antithesis of death. Death is the opposite of who he is. Death is a curse that's come into his good creation. And you pray to the author of life. And the God of the Old Testament was a God who could inspire the genius of a poet called David. And David could say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, not completed. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Think about those words. The Canaanite, when you go to a Canaanite funeral, as people get involved in the frenzy of mourning, they begin to cut their hair in all kinds of weird ways because somehow they think they'll get Baal and Ashtar's attention. They begin to cut their bodies because they think somehow when the blood will flow, somehow it will remove the curse that's come upon them as indicated by the loss of their loved one in death. And you go through this ceremony, it's ugly, it's dark, it's evil. And it's involving all this incredible pain to the human body. And Moses comes along and says, no, no, the ultimate God of the universe is like a daddy in heaven. He's a father that cares for you. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And if you are in a covenant relationship with the true God, you don't need to cut yourselves. You don't need to disfigure your body because your daddy in heaven responds to your heartache. He goes through the heartache with you. He cares about you. And it's hard to communicate to you as we teach the incredible deliverance that was for a people that were surrounded by all kinds of religions that involved the inflicting of pain. They didn't just do it at death. Let me expand a little bit and give you some other insights into how the Old Testament gives us some firsthand indications of how the Canaanites worshipped. There's a famous story that I'll remind you of. Remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And remember how it hadn't rained for month after month after month and the ground had turned to hardened steel and the cracks were developing and, and, the, and the top of the ground was just powder and all the fertility of Israel dried up and it became a tremendously powerful argument that said, Baal and Ashtart, you think they're the gods that produce fields that produce incredible harvests of wheat? You think that Baal and Ashtart and all this magical, wicked stuff that you do, you think that's what brings the prosperity of the field? And Elijah was a single man. He thought he was all by himself. There were several hundred that hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. But when he was challenging the false prophets at Mount Carmel, he thought he was the only one. And he stood before all the Baal worshippers in Israel because all of even the chosen people by Elijah's day had been sucked into the vortex of this evil, wicked, pain-inflicting religion. And so he said to the prophets of Baal, I challenge you. We're going to have the Super Bowl of the gods. And we're going to find out who really rules. And so he gathers the entire nation together. He gathers Ahab. He gathers the king. He gathers all of his court. And they gather on this mountain that's poised on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. It's one of the most dramatic places you can ever go. On the top of that mountain, he says, you go first. 
The prophets of Baal build their altar and they begin to pray. And they begin to cry out to Baal to send fire from heaven because he is the God of thunder and lightning. He is the God of fire. They pray for him to send fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice in the altar. And they cry out all day long. As the day begins to develop, they begin to go into a frenzy. The music begins to crank up. They begin to get more and more excited. They go into ecstasy and they take out long knife blades, according to 1 Kings, and they begin to cut their bodies. They begin to let the blood flow. And Elijah the prophet says to them, maybe you need to cry louder. Maybe Baal has gone on a holiday, as the British would say. Maybe he's gone on vacation, what we would say. Maybe he's asleep. I mean, Elijah was merciless. He says, you need to make more noise. Your God just can't hear you because he's deaf. And he goes on and on. He ribs them all day long. And this frantic frenzy of false worship goes on and on. The end of the afternoon, Elijah says, they're exhausted. I mean, there's only so much blood you can spill. There's only so long you can cry. I mean, there's only so long you can be in a frenzy of excitement. And so the Baal prophets just fall over, exhausted, probably fainting from pain and, and just pure at the end of their realm. And the humble prophet Elijah goes up. He tears down this gawky, you know, elaborate altar, and he takes 12 stones, just 12 rough stones. He builds an altar, puts his sacrifice upon it, and then he says an incredible thing. I want you to get some real strong husky guys. Go down to the Mediterranean Sea, and we're going to douse this thing. And they douse it and douse it. In a modern language, we would have brought the fire department in and just drenched the thing with a whole fire truck load of water. Now, if you know anything, you don't have to be a Boy Scout to realize if you want fire and you want to burn and you want to consume an altar, you don't drench the thing with water. If you want to get a fire going in your fireplace, you don't dip the logs in the bathtub before you put them in your fireplace. Unless you're an idiot. In the way that some of you are laughing, maybe some of you have actually done that. Now, I often, with a wood-burning stove, I often feel you can burn anything. And that's what Elijah did. He drenched that whole altar. And then he didn't cut himself. He didn't make himself go through all kinds of pain. He just probably got down on his knees. It does say that he just called out to God. And he said, Lord God of heaven. In essence, he says, Lord God of heaven, do your thing. God not only sent one lightning bolt that just burned up the sacrifice, he sent such powerful stroke. It was like a little nuclear explosion going off. I mean, it consumed not only the sacrifice, not only the stones, it licked up all this gigantic water that they'd poured all over this thing. I mean, it scared the willies out of everybody gathered around. You know why? Because our God hears us when we call. You say, Dave, what does this all have to do with us? In the Old Testament, Moses, the founder of the Israelite nation, says, My beloved people, you are the children of God. And Moses, if he were here today, he would say, There was a new Moses that came. And that new Moses is the one that I was longing to see. He was the prophet that I predicted would come in Deuteronomy 18. 
And he's the greater one that could say this. But as many as received me, to them I'll give the power to become the what? The children of God. Deuteronomy 14 begins, it says, Israelites, you are the children of God. And you say, Dave, how does that relate to me as an American sitting here under the teaching of the word of God? You know what, God? God comes to every one of these teenagers. And he comes to every one of these children. And he comes to every one of you adults. And he says, you, when you trusted Christ, the split second you trusted Christ, as a gift of amazing grace, you became a child of God. You know what that means? You don't ever cut yourself. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? That's not a danger in the American culture. I've been reading a book by Don Smarto. Don is the head of uh, the Billy Graham Center for Prison Ministries. I've been with Don several times in prison fellowship, and I knew that he had an incredible testimony, but I didn't know how special that testimony was. Don was raised in a Sicilian family up in Chicago. His ancestors were deeply involved in Al Capone's gang in those early days of gangland between New York and Chicago and all that went on there. He tells some incredible stories about that. But one of the amazing things about Don's story is that he studied to be a Roman Catholic priest. And part of that study involved going to the convent of the Perpetual Adoration in Clyde, Missouri. And he talks a little bit about his seminary training on the road to becoming a Roman Catholic priest. And he describes that one day one of the nuns of this, uh, this convent asked if I wanted to see Father Ekin's room. Father Ekin was one of the major leaders. He was the spiritual director of this convent. It was a simple room which the nuns kept constantly dusted, though just as it was on that day, he died in an auto accident in 1920s. In other words, they just kept his room exactly the way it was on the day that he died. It was rarely shown to an outsider. On one wall, there was a large oil painting of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. In front of the painting was an oriental rug with a velvet cushioned kneeler. The nun called my attention to the rug. There was an intricate pattern, but nothing out of the ordinary. Look again, she said. Then I saw some black spots. First, just a few. Then several then hundreds of black spots all around the kneeler. Suddenly, I realized it was blood. She opened Ekin's closet door, and there hanging from the hooks were several flagellators, sticks with strips of leather and tiny spiked metal balls on the ends. Father Ekin would whip himself across the back as a form of penance, as a form of self-mortification. Brothers and sisters, the reason that I teach you the word of God is that I guarantee you that I would never give a message on beware of false, vindictive, painful mourning rites if it wasn't for the word of God. But I want you to realize, though, for some of you, it's the very first time you've ever heard of that kind of self-flagellation. But I want you to realize that one of the agonies of the human heart, as you begin to become sensitive to your conscience, if you are a person that wants to get close to God like Don Smarto was, 
If you're a person that wants to be near him, that wants to know him, and you begin to realize there's something wrong with me. I don't keep the good intentions that I have, and I don't live consistently with who I am. Then what starts to happen is you start to feel, I need to inflict pain upon myself. And somehow, if I hurt enough, I will atone for my sin. That's what the Indian is doing when he goes through that incredible process of initiation as a young man in the Indian religions. They believe that somehow in this tremendous extreme of being exposed to the elements, of undergoing excruciating pain as the flesh is flagellated, that somehow the great spirit will give a special sign. He'll be able to talk to you. In Roman Catholicism, it became even more developed. Every false religion will eventually start to say you need to hurt yourself. In my own ministry, I found in counseling that if someone's experienced the effects of sin in their life, maybe they were abused as a child and somebody did some really evil things to them, And it made them feel that deep in the center of their being, it was just a dark, ugly nothing. And that's produced an incredible pain. The pain of that soul nothingness can cause a person to feel physically nothing. And in the jaws of that depression, I've had counselees that will begin to talk about the fact of tremendous, powerful temptations to want to cut themselves. Suicide is part of that. Life becomes so bad. You've let people down so seriously. You've sinned so much that you feel like the greatest thing I could do is just destroy my life. And Moses comes to us and you know what he says? My dear children of God, don't ever be enslaved by thinking that you have to inflict pain upon yourself in order to atone yourself in order to cover your sins before the almighty God of the universe. And what Moses would say to us is beware of strange morning rites.